0: and get uh get started i think that clock's just just a hair fast but it's about six o'clock and uh i'm glad to see you all here thanks for coming out we will go ahead and open with a word of prayer and then we'll get started did everybody get the handout for tonight there's handouts on the back chair if you need them and uh, we will be picking up on the handout from last time top of page 19 so If you need a handout from last time, I think there's a couple extra over here as well. All right, let's go ahead and uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, I'm thankful uh, to be here tonight. I'm, I'm grateful for your son. I'm thankful that he is the atoning sacrifice that can take away our sins. We're thankful that his work is sufficient for us. Uh, that we have no cause to dread, that we are under no condemnation because of what Christ has done for us. I pray tonight as we think about His work uh, through the words of the Apostle Paul uh, that we would think carefully and that we would uh, be attentive to how we can respond well to it and that You would use Your words uh, to help us to become more like Christ. And we ask for this in His name. Amen. All right, so just to remind ourselves of where we were at, we had left off talking about the law on the bottom of page 18. And that was part of a, a paragraph or a section, basically going from verses 17 through 29, where Paul, like any good teacher, is trying to think ahead about the objections that his hearers might have. And he's trying, in the bigger section, to say that all people, regardless of where they come from or who their ancestors are, are equally underneath the condemnation of sin. Well, one potential objection would come from a Jewish hearer who would say, well, what about the specific advantages that God's given to us, Uh, specifically the law of Moses and circumcision? Don't those count for anything. And so Paul answered the first one about the law. Uh, Basically, the law is only helpful to you if you keep it. And just possessing the law is not good enough. It's actually obedience to the law. And then at the top of page 19, he says a little bit here about circumcision. Let me just read some of that to get us started. So I'll start reading in verse 25 of chapter 2. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you You who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God." So at this point, he's really emphasizing that uh, their, their confidence in this external thing, this outward sign of being part of the community, wasn't enough to make them right with God. He says, after all, the Old Testament itself pointed to the fact that you needed to be circumcised inwardly. And even if a Gentile, so a Gentile who didn't have the law if he were to do the things that the law requires, wouldn't he be doing what's right? That's one of the hard places to understand exactly what's Paul referring to. What does he mean here when the one who is, so I'm reading again for verse 27, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code in circumcision are a lawbreaker. So he's He's clearly referring to Gentiles. They're they're the uncircumcised people. But what does he mean that they would be treated as if they were? What kind of law keeping is he referring to? Well, there's basically, there's three options here. So those three bullet points at the top of page 19. It could be that Paul's referring to the unbeliever who occasionally follows his conscience and does what is right. So he did refer to that type of person back in verses 14 and 15. We talked about that last time. But that doesn't seem to fit well with his argument at this point. Because at this point, he's really looking for something else. So it could be that Paul's referring to a condition that's never met. So this person's just hypothetical. Paul's saying if there was this type of person and he did what the law required, then God would consider him right. So that would be similar to a position that we took back in chapter 2. Paul does say something like that back in verses 7 and 10. And that's the, the uh, recommended book that we're reading for this class. That's the book, the argument that they take, the interpretation that they take. But I think, however, it may be here that at last Paul points specifically to those Gentiles who do have a changed heart and do things that are genuinely pleasing to God. It's a tough choice. I could either go with two or three. Both of them are are very plausible. They kind of fit into the argument. Paul could be saying this is just a hypothetical person who doesn't exist. Or he could be thinking ahead, and I think this is more likely. He's thinking ahead to what he's going to talk about later in the epistle, that when you and I are born again, actually something happens to us. Being born again isn't just like a ticket you get so that you go to heaven. When you're born again, you are, as the word suggests, you are reborn. You are a new person. You now have new desires and new abilities. Things that you never wanted to do before, now you want to do. And things that you couldn't do before, now you could. You're not a complete person yet. You're newborn as an infant, so to speak, spiritually. But you're now growing until the day that finally Jesus Christ comes for you. So I think Paul probably is thinking ahead to this type of person. If that person was a Gentile, and he actually did what the law required, God's not looking for any kind of external law that they're matching up with. What he's actually examining is your heart. And this fits well with Paul's argument that Jesus, as our judge, when we stand before him someday... We'll be able to evaluate our motives and our intentions and our affections, the things that we loved or the things that we didn't love. And all of those will be brought into account. That's an internal change. And I say there with the next bullet point that in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God had already promised that he would someday circumcise the heart of the people of Israel so that they would repent of their sins. So all of the male descendants of Abraham would have circumcised themselves physically in order to be a sign of the covenant, but God had already told them before they went into the promised land that that's not going to be enough. Just being a physical descendant of Abraham is not going to be enough. It won't enable you to keep my law. So this is a really pivotal passage. We we looked at this last year when we were studying Matthew. This probably won't be the last time in this class I reference Matthew because I think Matthew's important, and I enjoy the book of Matthew. But remember when we talked in the Matthew class, some of us were there, that when Jesus and John the Baptist show up and they're calling the people to repentance, they're pointing back to passages like this. That when that second generation of people, after all of their fathers and mothers had died in the wilderness, And they were getting ready on the plains of Moab to enter into the promised land. Moses gave them the law. He gave them the law for the second time. That's what Deuteronomy means. And he reminded them that you don't actually have the heart within you to keep God's law. Once you go into the promised land, you will inevitably, even if it takes generations, but you'll inevitably fall underneath the covenant curses. And God will have to come and punish you through foreign nations. And this will continue. The prophets will come and they'll warn you, but you won't listen to the prophets. And it will finally escalate to the point where you'll be removed from your land and you'll go into exile. But then he says in this key passage that if they turn back, if they repent, if they come back to the Lord their God in repentance, that he would rescue them and restore them. But they can only do that if He changes their heart. It's all about their heart condition. You and I would never have been able to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ if God hadn't moved first to change our heart. So one way you could explain circumcision of the heart, it's, it's an internal heart surgery. It's, it's giving you a new heart. Or to use another metaphor that the prophets use, you had a heart of stone and you needed a heart of flesh. You needed the all-powerful hand of God to reach into your inner person and make you new. And if you were made new, then you would be able to produce the fruit of the Spirit. You'd be able to do things that you wouldn't have been able to do before. So this is the promise that Moses gave them. He said, Someday the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul, and then you would live. Then you could have everlasting life. If you turn back to God, because He had first circumcised your heart. Again, another prophet who talked this way would have been the prophet Jeremiah. When he gave the promise of the new covenant, he contrasted the work of God that would someday take place internally, with the external law that they had on the tablets that Moses received on Sinai. He says, this is God speaking, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So again, it's, it's metaphorical language, just like circumcising the heart is a metaphor, but metaphors still point to real things. You really do need a change of heart. And that's what God is saying here. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be their people. So I say here at the very end of that that paragraph that starts there with Deuteronomy 36, whether Paul refers here to those who are transformed and are following God's moral law, which I think is more likely, or even if he's still referring to a group of people who never actually exist, from these Old Testament passages, Paul's readers would know, or at least they should know, that what ultimately counted before God was not outward acts, but an inward transformation. So that's the that's the end of that paragraph that we were kind of in the in the middle of when we left off. The, The law doesn't count as an advantage at the final judgment unless you actually keep it. And again, even circumcision doesn't count unless you actually keep the law, which would have been shocking to some of Paul's readers. It was still in their recent past, within 200 years roughly, that the people of Israel had been under Syrian kings who had actually tried to get them to stop following the law of Moses. To not be circumcised or to cover up their circumcision not to follow the dietary laws not to worship to the god of the bible not to keep a pure temple and they had a a heritage a history of revolting against that and overthrowing these syrian overlords and so when paul comes along and starts talking about an inward transformation and not an exterior keeping of the law to some people that would have sounded like you're betraying your ancestors everything that they fought and died for. And Paul's response to that would have been, now that he's a Christian, he would have said, no, actually this is what God has always been telling us, all the way through the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to the original five books of Moses. Alright, so let's move to the, uh, the next paragraph then. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So in this section, just quoting a little bit from our recommended book, Here, Paul heads off any idea that his argument in chapter 2 undercuts his claim from the theme of the letter that the gospel is for the Jew first. So remember, he said at the very beginning in chapter 1 that the gospel message was especially for the Jewish person, like himself. He himself was a former Pharisee, a Jewish person. Well, then again, he's reverting back to this diatribe style. So he's going to go into this question and answer mode. And basically, he's responding to the argument, well, if if I take what you're saying, Paul, if I hear you correctly, you're basically saying there's no advantage at all to being Jewish. That doesn't seem to fit with all of the Old Testament passages that speak of them as having a special position underneath God. So Paul puts a question in the mouth of a fictional opponent, And then he answers the question. And he goes back and forth like this three times. So the first question is uh, there in verse 1. I'll read that. Chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there being in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And Paul's response in verse 2 is, Much in every way. That sounds a little odd to our ears. That's not how we would talk. But it's just a figure of speech that means there's a bunch of them. (laughs) Let me count the ways. There's a bunch of advantages to being a Jewish person, Paul says. And then he says, first of all. Now, the interesting thing, he never says second of all or third of all. He just says, first of all. I think this is kind of cool, actually, because I think this is one example in the epistle where we actually are reminded that he's writing a letter he didn't, it seems to us, he didn't sit down with an outline and polish this out like we would an English essay that we were turning into a teacher, right? He's just writing a letter. And so I think he actually says, first of all, and intends to go second, third, but the first of all leads him on a long digression, and he's not going to come back to the other advantages until we get to chapter 9, and then he's going to develop this further. So, But there's one a special response. So... His response there is in verse 2, the number 1 up there on the slide. The Jewish people do have a genuine advantage in that they were given the Old Testament. He says, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Even at a very basic human level, we would all agree that unbelievers can benefit in their society from having laws. Uh, The world would be a darker... Tougher place to live if we were all lawless, if we didn't have a government over us that gave us laws to live by. Well, that's just at a very basic human level. How much more then would it be beneficial for unbelievers to live under a government or a set of laws that was given to them directly from God? I mean, that would be even greater, right? So Paul's saying, yes. If we if we want to think about this on a horizontal human level, then yes, the Jewish people had a great privilege because even though most of them were unbelievers, they didn't have that changed heart, they still lived under a very good law and it was given to them directly by God himself. They had the very oracles or the very words of God. Well, then the second objection is, well, what about all the promises that God made to the people of Israel? If he's not keeping those promises, does that question God's faithfulness? So that's the, that's the hypothetical question here in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Now, it's not really just some of them that were unfaithful. It was most of them. But in his hypothetical question, the question is, well, what if just some of them were unfaithful? does that still mean that God will not keep His promises then because of their unfaithfulness? And Paul says, absolutely not. Verse 4, not at all. Let God be true and every human be a liar. So even though his, the people that he had made a covenant with, even though most of them had been unfaithful, and remember he predicted it in Deuteronomy 30, that passage we looked at, so this didn't catch God by surprise, he's still going to be faithful. He's still going to keep all of his promises. That's what Paul answers here in verse 4. Despite Jewish unbelief, God will remain faithful to the promises made to the Jewish people. And then he supports that with a quotation. He says, as it is written, I'm reading from verse 4, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And you can see most of our Bibles, we've got the little footnotes, which are getting harder and harder for me to see, but they're they're still there. And it says Psalm 51, verse 4. He's actually quoting from a Psalm of David. So God acts so that he will be proved right when he speaks, and he will prevail when he's judged. Now that's a true statement, but the tricky thing about that, you've got to think about this for a second. And as a general rule, anytime an Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament, I think we're always supposed to go back and read the entire context. I think the New Testament writers are a little bit more demanding of us than sometimes we think. They think we know this really well, like they did. And so if we don't, which is true sometimes because we don't study the Old Testament maybe as much as we do the New Testament, we do need to go back and read the whole context. And in the context... This is actually David talking about his sin with Bathsheba and how God will hold him accountable. And for God to judge him as sinner is actually right. So that's interesting, isn't it? When Paul decides to quote a piece of the Old Testament to prove that God is always faithful and he can be trusted, he actually quotes a passage that points to the fact that God can be trusted judge sin (laughs) you see how that's striking so here his jewish opponent is saying hey will god still be faithful and paul's saying yes he will be faithful he always will do what's right but that comes with a double-edged sword because he also will be faithful in the way he carries out his justice so you this hypothetical opponent that's going back and forth with paul you need to also consider your heart attitude towards God. Because this God that you want to be faithful and you want Him to be consistent and always do what's right, if you walk into His throne room and ask for justice, then you yourself will be held accountable. And King David himself quoted that for us in Psalm 51. That's essentially, I think, what Paul is reminding his hypothetical reader. And he wants us to go back and think about that as well. Well, then the third objection is in verse 5. He says, But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing His wrath on us. Now, you, most of us, were familiar with the book of Romans. We know that he's going to come back to this argument later, right? Well, if, if God forgiving us, if the gospel message, if that brings glory to God, if it makes God look better, then is he really right to hold us accountable for our sin? Right? That's the argument. And it's such a silly argument that Paul, at this point, has to just really make it clear, this isn't me talking. You see what he does there? In our English Bibles there, it's in parentheses. But he says, I am using a human argument. Well, we've kind of figured that out, that he's doing this diatribe thing where he goes back and forth with a hypothetical opponent, But here he said something that's so foolish, he really wants you to know for sure. This isn't me talking. And then he says, certainly not. That's his strong answer, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is just. He he at this point thinks that that objection is so foolish that it doesn't even deserve a really full answer. He just says that the person who's thinking that way will receive a just judgment from God. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul refers to the fact that he's receiving this slanderous charge. So already when Paul and the other apostles went around the Mediterranean world and they shared the gospel, they were being accused of teaching people that it was okay to sin, that it wasn't, it wasn't going to be a problem to sin, which we know that's a wrong interpretation of what they taught, but the fact that that argument even existed proves, I think, that what they were teaching centered on God's grace, right? Because it's only a gospel that centers on God's grace and his mercy and his willingness to forgive that would cause someone to start falsely saying that you're minimizing sin. Do you see how that works? If Paul were teaching something very legalistic and man-made like all of the other human religions of this world, then this whole slanderous charge never would have showed up. But Paul regularly has to confront this. No, that's a misrepresentation of the gospel message. Why? This is the full answer that he'll get to when we get to chapter 6. It's because of that circumcised heart. It's because of the new birth. A person who's truly been saved by God's grace will have a new heart. And they never would be thinking this way. They wanted to be saved from their sins. And they graciously were saved of their sins. So why would they go back to their sins? And why would they excuse their sins? Sins should cause them to mourn. Sins should cause them to want to seek God's repentance. All right, so that's his argument there in verses 1 through 8. I'll stop there for a second. Any, any questions up to this point? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, well, that would, it's a serious misrepresentation of what Paul is saying and what the rest of the Bible says. So Paul is, at this point in his letter, he's trying to draw us all into the same boat. So he's not really emphasizing the things that we have that are different. He's emphasizing what we have in common. That especially is going to come true in this next section. And he has to do that because we have to see ourselves in the same boat before we realize that we all need the same solution, so there there isn't a separate salvation for Jewish people and Gentile people. It's always been one way, because the problem was always the same. You know, they didn't they didn't have a different kind of sinning than we did that required a different kind of salvation. It was a human problem, and so uh, yeah, for someone to call God a racist is just. A misrepresentation of everything that God has res- revealed Himself to be in Scripture, um, and I think probably it, it's based in part on the misconception that that if you don't receive equal opportunities and benefits and gifts, that that somehow means that God loves you less. Does that make sense? So yeah. yeah.
1: Mm Said, Well, I'm here to talk to the Jewish people. Yes. And she said she made that statement about even even the dogs eat the scraps from under the table. And he, he said, Your faith is, you know, your prayer will be answered because of your faith.
0: Right. yeah so without having without knowing your friend and without being part of the whole conversation it just sounds to me that potentially their objection is that unless god gives everyone the same thing then he's showing favoritism but the answer to that is that none of us deserve anything so if god gives anybody anything it's grace and he's never obligated to give anything to anybody and so in that the story of the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman in the in the Gospels what we can see now what Jesus is trying to do he's trying to draw out of her a response of faith he's trying to get her to say yes I don't deserve your kindness because none of us do I don't deserve you to heal my daughter but you could do it and I'm just asking for scraps (laughs) I'm asking for crumbs and what she's basically saying is I'm asking for mercy and when, when Jesus sees that type of heart attitude, he knows that's saving faith. And he, I think, heals her child there in order that the rest of us can see this as a picture of faith and the healing then is a window into what's happened in her heart. Um, that, that's the, the tendency that we have to fight, is that we, we're, we're owed something. And if we don't all get the same thing, then that means God loves us in different ways. So I think that's where the the charge of racism is coming from, but that's uh, that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? Right, yeah. This, this of, of mm-hmm. Yeah, we got to fight in all of us, don't we? It's it's yeah. part of human nature. Yep. Wasn't the original tent with through Israel all would be blessed, mm-hmm. and they failed in that. Mandate? Yeah yeah so that was the promise to abraham that he would not only have a nation and and a personal you know blessing to himself but that through him and through his people the whole world would be blessed Um, and you know you you can't help but read the stories in genesis and realize that you know god is being gracious to abraham he found him as a pagan worshiping idols and ur and he chose him at the uh at the mount sinai event you know in exodus god's very clear i didn't choose this because you're good i didn't choose you because you're larger than other nations i didn't choose you because of anything other than i chose you which then you know in many ways israel is a picture of us right there's some in ways we're different but there's some ways they're the same because when we read that exodus story we can hear our own story in that that when god looked down from heaven and changed ryan Meyer's heart he didn't do it because i was a good guy or because I had anything attractive about me. I was actually a rebel who was, and even in my own little ways, shaking my fist in his face. And he decided to love me. And he decided to change my heart. And when he changed my heart, I responded in repentance and faith. So, yeah, it's, it's always been by God's grace. That's, that's what Paul is trying to very much emphasize in this letter. He's not teaching something that's completely new. He's just adding on to a story that's been told since the book of Genesis. So we're supposed to make all of these, all of these connections.
1: Is that say? Oh.
0: I think we got a question for a questioner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right should we go a little further all right let's go to verses 9 through 20 so again I'm I'm giving you a little snippet of our our recommended book just because I think it's helpful and uh, our author there Moo helpfully points out three purposes for this paragraph so what's Paul up to in this in this paragraph here verses 9 through 20 First of all, he wants to conclude his indictment of humanity with the chilling verdict that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. That's in verse 9. Let me just read that for you. He says, what shall we conclude then? So he's basically, he's drawing a conclusion to everything we've talked about since chapter 1, verse 18. He says, do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge, and here it is, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And that power of sin, I I highlighted it and underlined it in your notes there because that's a very important phrase. Um, It's not just that we need to be forgiven of of our sins, which is definitely true, right? We have guilt before God. We, we have a penalty that we deserve. But we also are underneath God's power. If, if God just wiped our slate clean and forgave us, we would still have a very significant problem that we need to be rescued from. And that that's that we still live under this tyranny of sin. And, and Paul's going to develop this further when we get later in the letter. But he thinks of us as living in a sphere or in a space You could kind of think of it as like a field with a fence around it. And you're here, and you're stuck in that, and you have a a master over you in that space, in that sphere. And the master is sin, and you can't help but sin. You're controlled by sin. You're underneath sin's power. Sin has a gravitational pull against you that you can't get out of. You're not strong enough. But God is. God is able to break that power of sin over us. So... Paul's here emphasizing it's not just that you've sinned, it's also that you're a sinner and that you left on your own will keep on sinning. And then he's just going to go through a whole list of Old Testament passages. This is point two to illustrate that this indictment was already there in the Old Testament. And he, he very much emphasizes that no one is excluded from this. So when we go to... Uh, the end of verse 12 in our bibles you see it's not even one there is no one who does good not even one that's a just an extra way of emphasizing that nobody is left out of this so just another quote from another writer here that i appreciate Uh, it says paul uses absolute negative language to emphasize that human sinfulness is all-inclusive absolute negative language avoids misunderstanding and it emphasizes universality universality without exception. And there, here's an example of this from the Old Testament, a story we know, the story of Absalom. It says, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Well, you could have just stopped there, right? He, he struck down all the king's sons. But then it says, and not one of them is left. Well, it's, it's a little bit redundant, right, to say that. But it really drives home the point that he killed everybody. And there was all, everyone was dead. There was no exceptions. Paul's using that same kind of language here, that when we read verses 10 through 18, that's all of us in there. Everybody in this room, apart from Christ, you're being portrayed in that passage. I'm being portrayed in the, that passage. Because now, between verses, verse 18 of chapter 1 up to this point, Paul's drawn everybody into the net and shown that we were all underneath the condemnation and power of sin. And so his conclusion there in verses 19 through 20 is that we can't seek salvation from the law. Let me read that for us. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscience of our sin so it's not that the law will save us it's only that the law will make us more aware of the fact that we're sinners now turning the page to page 21 there is a question here so he's using the Old Testament law as an illustration of the fact that all of us are underneath the condemnation of sin and that none of us can be saved so you might ask the question, this is my first bullet point, why would the Jewish person's accountability under the law of Moses make the whole world liable to God's judgment? That's a little bit of a puzzle, right? Well, we, we were never under the law to begin with. So why does their failure to keep the law illustrate our predicament? That could be the question. Well, I think here Paul's making a, what you could call from the greater to the lesser argument. And this is how the argument would work logically. If the Jewish people, with all of their privileges, could not keep God's law, then nobody could. And God is right to condemn all people then. When we read about the Jewish people in the scriptures, we might, as Gentiles, make the mistake of thinking we are reading someone else's mail. But it is important to remember that they are part of the same human race. We share the same human nature, and and in many ways, they are representative of all of us. If they fail to keep God's law, then we would also fail, and we do fail, to keep God's law. So even though we don't have the written law of Moses, there is a, a moral law that God has over all of his creatures, and we've broken that, right? And for us to think that if we had been in their shoes back in the wilderness or back in the promised land and that we would have done a better job, that's a faulty (laughs) misconception. It's a misconception of human nature, right? We're forgetting that we're also part of the same human race descended from from Adam. Now, the third bullet point there, there is some debate over the meaning of the phrase, works to the law. So this is a little bit of uh, advanced information for the, all the inquiring minds out there. So some people would argue that, well, Ryan, everything you just said there, you know, that's very classical Protestant way of explaining the gospel. But that's, that's a misrepresentation of Paul. Uh, you're assuming that Pharisees and everybody in his days were similar to a Roman Catholic or people that we encounter but that's just not true that's not how the Jewish people viewed themselves so some people would argue then that when he uses that little works of the law phrase that he's just speaking very narrowly of the specific things that separated Jewish people from Gentiles such as circumcision or food laws so I'm I'm applying this very broadly and I'm saying that Paul here is ruling out anything that you do that's law-keeping as a means of salvation, he's just putting a great big X through that and saying, No, that's not going to work. Well, the other side would say, Well, you've, you've misunderstood Paul. He's not ruling out everything, he's just saying the specific things that Jewish people do that set them apart from Gentiles. So circumcision, maybe Sabbath keeping, the kosher dietary laws. Paul wants you to stop doing those things because those things drive a wedge between Gentiles and and Jewish people. But he's not actually talking about law-keeping in general. So that's the argument. Sometimes that argument is out there when you're talking to people. So this is my response to it with the however there. I say, however, this would not fit with Paul's argument in this section, which says that mankind can do nothing that would make them right with God. Therefore, the majority position throughout church history has rightly understood Paul to mean that keeping any laws will not justify a sinner, whether that's the law of Moses or, by extension, any other list of requirements. This option not only fits best with what Paul says here, but what, with what he says in other New Testament letters. So I'm making kind of three arguments. One, the, Christians have been reading this letter for 2,000 years and they've taken it to mean that he's ruling out all law-keeping. Number two, I think law-keeping fits best with his argument here because Paul is trying to say there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God apart from Christ. And number three, we have other places in the New Testament where Paul clearly means that there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right. And here I was thinking of Philippians chapter 3, Verse 11. So if if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to go over there and read that for us. If you're ever in a discussion with somebody sharing the gospel, and they have this kind of objection, this is always a good place to go to. This is Philippians 3. You know the passage, but it's just good to read it. And let me just go down to... Let me go down, I'll start reading in verse 7. So you remember he's been listing out all of the things that he thought were worthy of confidence before he came to Christ. And now that he's a believer, he says in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. You hear that whatever there? What is more, I consider everything, there it is again, a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So I think his language here is pretty universal. It's everything. Everything that you're talking to a person about and they start listing off to you as the things that they're putting confidence in. So church membership, confirmation, baptism, good works that they perform, community service, just being a good neighbor. You know, they can list off things till the cows come home, right? We've had these conversations with people and we should be, gracious and merciful to him right because apart from christ we would be doing the same thing but you can take him to passages like this and say that here's here's scripture telling us that whatever you're putting confidence in should be back in this category that paul now says was worthless to me it was garbage compared to knowing christ that he some he'll he'll someday attain to the resurrection of the dead but someday the apostle paul will rise at the command of god and he will attain that not because of all of the things that he had accomplished but because of what christ had accomplished that's what he's saying here in philippians chapter 3 so that's my quick argument for saying now when we go back to chapter 3 of romans that when paul puts a great big x through works of the law you're right to apply that to any kind of law keeping it's not specifically talking about the jewish person and their law it's talking about any kind of man-made effort to make yourself right with God apart, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. Alright, I think it's our break time. So let's take a break and then we will come back and dive in again. Yeah, more the latter. I think it's more a prophecy that will come but you don't have the specific content other than it will be internalized. so that, you know, that passage we looked at earlier said it's written on your heart. So it doesn't seem to be like a code that's given to them. Yeah. I would imagine, though, that what it looks like is what we find in the New Testament, though. So I'm thinking here of, like, the Sermon on the Mount, for example, where Jesus makes explicit things that were implicit in the Old Testament. Yeah. I ask because people say, like, you know, with a legal document, you can't, like, add parties to it and stuff hmm. like that. Yeah, so so I do take the position that it's not actually ratified and begins until Jesus' second coming. But I think that we now are proleptically receiving the same kind of benefits. Uh, where I differ with, with some, though, is I would say that Old Testament believers are also receiving those benefits. So if you want to say that we're receiving new covenant benefits, I'm okay with that. But I think you should also include people like you know, David and Abraham and Hannah and Ruth and all of the other Old Testament believers. Yeah. All right, let's jump into uh, chapter 3, verse 21. So we've now come to a big break, a major shift in the letter. Previously, Paul has been trying to paint the bad news for us. Why do we need the righteousness of God being revealed in the Gospel? because the wrath of God is already presently being revealed and will be fully revealed at the, the final judgment. So let me just uh, read a little bit from the very end of that opening paragraph there. So in this section, Paul explains how, number one, God can remain righteous in same, saving some of these justly condemned sinners. And number two, how do sinners actually receive this salvation? So... How is God going to go about justifying people while still being just? Or to put that in the other way, you can translate those words. How can he declare people to be righteous and at the same time be right himself and not just sweep their sins under the rug? And number two, if he's actually doing this somehow in a righteous manner, how how do you and I or the person that we're talking to, how do we receive this? And so this is what Paul's going to address in this opening paragraph of this big section, so this would be verses 21 through 26, and I give you kind of a snapshot of the whole paragraph up there on the screen. But this is uh, really the central paragraph of Paul's letter in some ways. So I'm quoting here from Luther. He said that this paragraph, which actually in the original language is just one great big long sentence, He says it's the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. So uh, Doug Moo, who's writing our textbook, he says it's the heart of the section. Leon Morris, I, I like this phrase, he says it's possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. So now that we've set it up that way, right, we have to take a little extra time and dig into what Paul is actually referring to. So The the key word, or the key concept that's being emphasized here is justification. So let's just talk a little bit about what justification is. It's a concept that's closely related to righteousness, but the close connection between those two words is sometimes obscured to us in English. In Greek, there's one noun and there's one verb that they're cousins. So like in English, we could have the word love, and then we could have the the verb he loved or she was loving, and we would say those two t- words are cousins. One's a noun, one's a verb, but they're, they're related to each other. Same kind of thing happens in other languages. You could have a noun and a verb that are cousins, and there's one of these pairs that shows up over and over again in Paul's letter, and you could translate them sometimes as righteousness, sometimes as justice. If it's the verb, you could translate it as justify. And then there's a related noun that'll be translated as justification when you get to chapter 4, verse 25. So since we're going to be focusing on this, let's try to give a definition. So I'm quoting here from uh, Roland McCune, a longtime professor at the seminary there in Allen Park. He says, Justification is an act of God by which he judiciously constitutes and declares a sinner to be perfectly righteous and forever treats him as such. So it's judicial. It doesn't actually make you righteous, but it declares that you are righteous. It has two sides to it. It not only says that you're not guilty of all of the sins that you previously have committed, but it's also saying moving forward, I'm going to treat you as if you're right. I'm going to treat you as if you have kept all of the laws and you've actually done what God required. And both of those are given to the center as a gift. It's not actual the new birth. It's not sanctification, but it's something that accompanies it. It's a judicial, declare, a, a judicial declaration by our judge. So the paragraph starts out with this very important phrase here, but now. So it draws attention to the shift that has occurred with the coming of Christ. So all of us were in this this dark boat, so to speak, that Paul's been painting, but now there's an alternative. There's another solution that's available to us through Jesus. Jesus brings a righteousness, a perfect record of keeping the moral law that is apart from the law. So this isn't something that you get through law-keeping, whether that's the Mosaic law or any other law, It's something that's given to you through Christ. In other words, he brings away a being made right with God, which was not available previously. Although this righteousness was something to which the law and the prophets testify. So the law of Moses itself did not make this available to people. But as we go through the letter, just a little bit here, we're going to realize there were already some people in the Old Testament who received this. So this is something that was revealed. It was something that was talked about. It was something that was available to people during the Old Testament era, but it wasn't something that they got from the law. It was always something that was apart from the law. And the very last point at the bottom there, Paul says that this righteousness comes to people through faith in Jesus. So those first two bullet points up there on the slide, you know, his main point is that there's a righteousness that's being re- revealed. And then he describes that righteousness two ways to tell you more information about it. The first thing he tells you was, well, it was witnessed to by the Old Testament. We'll come back to that in chapter 4 with the examples of Abraham and David. But number two, it's something that's received by faith. And it leads to a justification for everyone who believes. So it's received through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we have there at the end. Of verse 22 now here's one of another interpretive issue and so i'm mean, just this is just for fun okay no don't get stressed out we're not going to do a quiz here all right so we're just gonna we're gonna think about if romans 3:22 were a code all right so we can all relax for a second we all like codes we like to solve codes when we we're little when i was little there used to be codes on the like on the back of a cereal box and you had some kind of decoder mechanism, a ring, symbols, whatever. And codes always worked very mechanically. Like if there was an X, you were supposed to make it into an S. If there was a B, you were supposed to make it into E. And as long as you had the key, you could figure it out. Well, sometimes people make the mistake of thinking translations in from one language to another work the same way. And if we learn other languages, it doesn't matter what language, any language, pretty soon you realize that just doesn't work. You can't just translate word for word from one language to another so if you took paul's words this is the end of romans 3:22, and you just lined up an english word after each one of his lines it wouldn't make any sense it would have said something like righteousness but god through faith jesus christ to all the believing no for it is difference or different It's it's kind of gobbledygook. There's two things going on. First of all, the word order needs to be switched around. That's pretty common. Second of all, they tend to say things with fewer words than we do. And so you have to add words. English tend, you ever see a book that's gone from like Spanish to English or vice versa, you'll realize the English book is always larger. We we use more words to say the same types of things. So we're going to have to smooth this out. So that's what a smoothed out version of it would be saying he's saying there's a righteousness that's received we're going to have to add that word it's received through faith in jesus christ for the advantage of all who are believing because there is no distinction i just want to draw your attention to that little word in red because if i go back a slide you'll notice that that word in we had to supply it because it's just the word for faith and then it's the name jesus christ So people have debated, well, what's the best way to translate that? And you can see it in the notes there. So at the bottom of page 22, I give you four of the English translations that we're really used to. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. So how does someone get this justification? You do it by trusting in Jesus. Jesus is the object of your faith. Well, some people have said, well, that's not what Paul's saying. It could be translated a different way. And you could see this. In the Net Bible, and the Net Bible is another very good English translation. It sometimes shows up in those footnotes that are hard to see in other translations, but it'll be something like through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So then the argument is, well, we're not saved, at least that's not what Paul's saying here. We're not Paul's not saying we're saved through trusting in Jesus. What Paul's actually saying is we're trust, we're saved because Jesus was faithful. So instead of Jesus being the object of our faith, it's actually Jesus doing faithfulness, and that's what saves us. Well, there is an element of truth in that. We actually do need Jesus to be faithful in order for us to be saved. The only way that you and I could have a right record of always keeping God's law would be if Jesus provided his to us. Jesus always did exactly what was right, both in his thoughts and his loves, his affections, his motives, his intentions, all of his outward actions. Everything was absolutely perfect about our Lord Jesus. And he offers that free, he offers that record to us as a free gift. That's an important part of our justification. So that's true. I just don't think that's what Paul's referring to here. Uh, Other places in the Bible talk about that. But here I think he truly is saying you need to receive this as a gift through placing your faith in, in Jesus. So here's a little bit of my argument for, uh, for the, the traditional translation. So this, this alternate translation is grammatically possible. For example, there's a similar expression coming up here in chapter 4 where he says something like the faith of Abraham and it clearly doesn't mean faith in Abraham, right? It means Abraham is being faithful. However, number one, the traditional translation reflected in nearly all of our English versions is most likely correct. There's nowhere in the New Testament that clearly refers to us being saved because of Christ's faithfulness or faith. Those types of words are never used to describe Christ's faith. When it talks about faith, it's always us putting faith in Jesus. So that would be my first argument. Number two, at this point in Romans, Paul is emphasizing faith in God rather than Jesus' own faithfulness. It just wouldn't fit in the argument. It would just be popping in out of nowhere. There's nothing in the letter so far that's set us up to know that Paul wants to talk about Jesus' faithfulness. And third, and this is probably the most important argument, There's other places in the Bible that clearly say that we need to put faith in Jesus. So a clear place would be Galatians 2.16, where the word translated in isn't just implied, it's actually there. There's actually a a little preposition, a little word that actually says about believers, they are people who have put our faith in Christ Jesus. So if you're talking to someone about the gospel... The only way they're going to respond to it is if they have a new heart, if God moves first to open their eyes. You can just keep giving them Scripture, and you can, but remember, that's not in and of itself going to solve the problem because the people of Israel also had the Scriptures. They had the words of God. They had the oracles of God, Paul said. It has to be them receiving Scripture and also God changing their heart. But at the same time, you don't say to someone, hey, just sit around and wait for the new birth. Just sit around and wait for God to change your heart. That's never how Jesus or the apostles ever present the gospel. Jesus, John the Baptist, it was always repent. The apostles, it's always repent and believe, two sides of the same coin. You're calling people to make a decision. And it's with that call that goes out that God in his grace accompanies it with an effectual call that pulls people to himself. So how do you receive this free gift? You receive it through putting your faith in Jesus. You're looking away from yourself and you're looking towards someone else. It should be noted, I say there at the that first bullet point on page 23, that Paul chooses to describe this righteousness as something received through faith. So let's go back to our, our main slide there, that... that um, it's an important point. It's through faith. He doesn't say it's on account of faith or he doesn't say it's because of faith. So we would sometimes say that just in ordinary English, you know, you might say I was saved because I trust in Christ. And we would be charitable with you. Like I wouldn't like nitpick and I don't think you should nitpick because you know what the person means, right? But if you're being super technical about it, their their faith wasn't the cause. Their faith wasn't the basis. The faith was the open hand reaching out to receive a free gift. The basis or the cause will always be the work of Christ. We're saved by God's grace on the basis of what Jesus accomplished, and it's received through faith. So even those little tiny prepositions are important to Paul's argument. And he deliberately uses the word, the word one that means through. Then he says this is available to all who believe. Okay. Now, rather than being redundant, so what am I doing there? I say in the footnote, I'm just responding to another one of those arguments from above. So the same people that say, well, this should be translated as the faithfulness of Jesus. They would say, well, if he's talking about faith in Jesus, then why does he say to all who believe? Because he'd be saying the same thing twice. That sounds redundant. So how would I respond to that? I'd say, well, rather than being redundant, Paul's assertion that this righteousness comes to all who believe, and I'm quoting there, emphasizes the universal nature of this righteousness. This righteousness gained by faith in Jesus is advantageous for anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus. It's available to all people. It's the only way that anyone can be saved. And Paul's really emphasizing the every oneness of it, the allness of it, yes. Yep. So, if I think if you compare all the places in Scripture that call sinners to salvation, you'll see that repentance and faith are used interchangeably. So sometimes only repentance is mentioned. So like Jesus and John the Baptist, they just keep saying repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Sometimes only faith is mentioned, like here. And then sometimes both of them are mentioned. So there's places in like the book of Acts where the apostles are preaching and they talk about repentance and faith being, being both there. So I think if you put all that evidence together, the conclusion you come to is that they always happen together. And so if one of them is talked about, the other one is assumed. So that's where I get that expression, they're two sides of a coin. So if I have a penny and I've got Lincoln's head, I've also got Lincoln's Memorial, right? I can't have Lincoln's Memorial without the head. And if I talk about, Hey, I've got Lincoln's head here in this coin and I, and you say, well, wait a minute, Ryan, what about the Memorial? Do you also have him too? I'm like, well, yeah, of course, because you can't have one without the other. They seem to think repentance has anything to do with what's going on. Yeah, so there there is a a strain, I don't know what the right word is, there's a branch of professing Christianity that minimizes repentance and doesn't like to talk about it. Sometimes they just don't like to talk about it. Uh, Sometimes they redefine it and they say it's just an intellectual change of mind. And uh, that doesn't seem to be how the way, that doesn't seem to be how the scriptures use it. In the Scriptures, this is really clear, especially in the Old Testament, it's the idea of turning around. So you were going one direction with your life, and you realized it was the wrong direction, so there was something intellectual going on, but that that realization caused you to make a U-turn and actually start going another direction. So um, I do think that's a, that's a, a a distorted view of the gospel that excludes repentance, The only way you can get there is if you ignore a bunch of Bible verses that that call for it. And I also think the thing to keep in mind is that we aren't just called to a one-time trust in Christ and a repentance, right? We will be trusters and repenters (laughs) the rest of our lives until Christ comes for us. Our whole life as Christians will be an ongoing daily repentance, and it should be an ongoing daily trusting uh, so, it, again, we have to resist that tendency that we may have or seen in others of reducing the response to the gospel to just a simple kind of transactional mechanical thing. You, you prayed a prayer, you checked a box, you walked an aisle, you raised your hand, uh, you asked Jesus in your heart. Um, if somebody uses those types of language, I think you've got to be gracious with them. and and make sure you know what they mean by it because sometimes people are just using those types of expressions because that's how they were brought up. But you'd you'd ideally want to work through Bible passages with them and show that true conversion leads to a life of following Christ. See, I think some
1: of those people, that's what they learned and they didn't
0: go any farther and they think Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yep. It's 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 definitely out there. I mean, I, I have conversations with people um, regularly about it that'll you know contact me through email or just in personal conversations where, you know, it's just faith and it's not repentance. And uh, so what I like to do sometimes I'll refer to it as repentant faith. It's you know it's the same thing. It's it's it's, it's they're two distinct things. So there there's something different about them. But they always come as a package, and you can't have one without the other. And so we should we should present both of them because that's what the the New Testament does for us. It's a good question. All right. So why why all of this emphasis on this allness? Why does Paul say it's all who believe? Well, he he actually s- explains that for us. So right in the middle of verse twenty two. You could, you could, depending on your English version, see a little four there. So I'll, let me read verse 22 again for us. So this righteousness is given, you know, given, it's a gift, through faith in Jesus Christ to all believe. For, now he's giving you the reason why it's to everyone, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. So the same salvation is available to everyone, because there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, well, what do you mean there's no difference? Well, then he gives another four. And this is the one that we especially know, right? Because it's a frequently memorized verse. Maybe you've not stopped and thought before, though. Why does he start that verse that we've all memorized with the word for? Well, it's because he's explaining what he just said. It's because, or it's for, all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God and then also all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by christ jesus so both the problem and the solution is universal we all had the same problem we all had sinned we are all continually falling short of the glory of god but we also can all be justified freely as a gift through the redemption that came by jesus what does he mean by glory of god Humans were, so I'm starting now on page 24, humans were created to reflect God's glory. That was our original purpose. But we've abandoned that calling, and we've demonstrated a craving for glory and vain pursuits. This is an interesting thing to think about. We were originally created for something big. We were supposed to be the walking, living, breathing images of the invisible, glorious God ancient kings in, in ancient Near East would create statues as physical representations of the fact that this is their territory. But when our king made his universe, he didn't create statues, he created us. It was our job to reflect to the degree that humans can all of the attributes of, of our God to make the invisible God visible. So we were hardwired from the very beginning for this great and big purpose. There's something inside of all humans that knows there's got to be more than just the normal things that we do in life. But instead of attaching that back to our original purpose, what centers will do by their own nature is attach that to something worthless. So this is why people will live for hobbies, they'll live for sports, they'll live for uh, their country, they'll live for social causes, environmental causes, you name it. Um, one famous reformer, Calvin, says that our heart is a factory for idols, that will keep coming up with new things to worship and live for because we have that craving inside of us that tells us there has to be something that we're living for. That's what Paul's referring to. You, you had this privilege, it was reflecting the glory of God, But when you send you're all falling short of that privilege and so the people that we talk to they all as some people have coined the phrase they all have a a god-sized hole or a god-shaped hole in their heart they have something missing because they realize that there's something more the privilege that you and i have is going to them and saying look have you seen what the scriptures say the scriptures explain where we originally came from explains what our original purpose was, what we were supposed to be living for. And it also explains how through Jesus Christ we can get back to living for that specific purpose. So then after he explains why this is universally available, he gets back in verse 24 and he resumes his discussion here and he explains in more detail what it means that a believer receives righteousness. He says these believers are justified by God, that is, they're declared to be right, as if they kept God's moral law, even though they have not. This is a legal declaration. It's given freely, he says, number one, and it's also through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Then he's going to refer in verse 25 to the fact that it's God presenting Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Or in some of our older English translations, it was a propitiation, which sacrifice of atonement's a pretty good translation of. But Paul's deliberately picking a word that some people who are familiar with the Old Testament would have picked up on. It's the same word that's used for the mercy seat, where they received temporary, very horizontal propitiation of God's wrath in this life, but never was that able to fully and finally remove their sins until Jesus Christ came along. So I'm saying I'll pick up and just read a little bit more. Paul likely chose this particular word because it was used at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, but where the people of Israel were never ultimately made right with their God in a manner that would qualify them to enter the coming eternal kingdom. This particular propitiation, which was far greater than anything done under the Mosaic law, was accomplished by Jesus' death. That's what he means with the little, it's in his blood, that stands for his death. It was the benefits of this propitiation are received by faith. He says that again. The purpose of this propitiation was to demonstrate his righteousness. Well, then you ask yourself, well, why did... Why did God have to demonstrate his righteousness? And it has a two part answer. First of all, because during the Old Testament, he had patiently allowed believers to continue in their sins without a sacrifice that removed the wrath that those sins deserved. So there were, there were people in the Old Testament, like let's think of a David or a Samuel or a, you know, a Ruth, um, who, who were believers. Any of those people that we find in Hebrews chapter 11, when their faith is pointed out to, they're offering regular sacrifices to God, like the law of Moses required, that makes them right with the state and keeps them right within their covenant community. But the writer of Hebrews says it never was able to actually take away their sins. It never would have made them right with God on a vertical plane and with an eye towards the final judgment. But God forgave them, promised them that someday they could have resurrection life, and he was patient with them. Well, why could he do that? Because he always had in his mind, always had in his plan, that someday he was going to send Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for their sins. So that's the first purpose Paul points to, that God was forbearing or patient with Old Testament believers, and so for for that purpose that he finally had to demonstrate his righteousness. You know, to put, it, to put it simply, you know, because I've had this conversation with unbelievers, you know, they're like, why, why is David a good guy? You know, I've read the stories. He's a bad guy. He has multiple wives. He kills people. He does all kinds of despicable things. So the answer is, well, why could God be patient with David? Why does David continue to live? And why will David someday be in the Messiah's kingdom? And the answer is because Jesus Christ died for him. All of David's sins were placed on Jesus. That's what Paul means here by forbearance. But it's not just there, because at the end of verse 25, he also, this is his second purpose, he's demonstrating his righteousness now. He's actually forgiving people now. People like you and me can also know that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was the propitiation for our sins. And God is right to forgive us, because he didn't just sweep them under the rug and act like they didn't happen. They actually were paid for. So here, Paul is referring to what we will often refer to as the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just making something available, but that he was actually bearing our penalty. He was dying the death that we deserved so that God could show his righteousness in forgiving us. Any, any final questions there about that paragraph? One long sentence, one important paragraph in English, and I really do think it's, Morris is probably right when he says it's one of the most important paragraphs ever written. If not, Lord willing, we'll see you next week, and we'll, we'll meet again. We'll start uh, with chapter 3, verse 27 there. All right, we'll see you then.